Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How are you guys doing today? Good, I hope. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, last week I made the mistake of thinking that we were getting over the hump and that didn't turn out to be. So I started asking myself, what's something that the Lord might be saying that I can't hear in all the noise? And I flashed back to a time in my life when we used to go on our family vacations and I was a small child in the back of a country squire station wagon. And I had this phrase that I would say all the way from Orange County to Bishop. And that phrase was, how much longer, Dad? How much longer can this trip actually be? Have we not been in the car all day and all night? Actually, no. We used to wake us up about 5 in the morning and try to leave so we'd get there. And at some point, my mom would finally turn around and had enough of enough and say, you know what? That's enough with that. When you're there, they're there. And I was like, no, I need to know how much longer. Does it feel like that's what we're doing right now, church? Like we're grown up and everything like that, but we're still asking the Lord, like, how much longer? And then it hit me. I'm an adult and I'm still in that same position. I'm behind the shoulder of the Lord and I'm asking him, Lord, how much longer till I can hug somebody? You know, air fives and air hugs are just not working anymore. How much longer? And I hear the Lord say back to me, we're en route to a very special place, Jeff. Just hang on and remember, I never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I just wanted to remind you that this morning, if you're in that position, you find yourself at home waking up this morning saying, how much longer do we have to eat manna? How much longer do we have to wait? The Lord has never left us and he has taken us somewhere, church. And we need to be excited about the place that he has in mind. But for this very day, but for this very time, let me pray to the Lord as we continue in worship. Father God, we thank you for what is another blessed and wonderful opportunity to see your hand. We know that it's an adverse time. We know that it's a difficult time. But we know that some of the best work that's ever been done is in adversity. When we're on our back and we're looking up and we have nowhere else to go but to the feet of the cross where we can talk about the sin of feeling like we've let you down or let our children down or let other people down. Father, may your spirit continue to provide that comfort that we need so greatly from him and realize that we're en route to somewhere. Nothing's going to stop that. But today is the day that the Lord has made, so we will rejoice and be glad in it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. How much longer? My kids have a similar saying. They're always constantly asking, are we there yet? And we have a a road trip coming up here in a a couple of weeks, and I am anticipating many of those questions. Are we there yet? Um, And yet, you know, one of the things, as you were sharing that, Jeff, one of the things that really resonates for me is the reminder that even in the midst of that, oftentimes it's the journey. That is the part. As a parent now, as I'm taking my kids on on. This, it's the journey of being together in the car. It's the things we get to see along the way, the unexpected. And the beautiful part of it all is that we're all in the car together, right? That's the whole point of a family vacation. And um, I forget that because right now it kind of feels at times for all of us that we are in it by ourselves. We're isolated in our homes. God feels distant our, our community, our church community. I mean, we're scattered all over Orange County right now and even all over the world. And if you're joining us uh, from outside of Orange County, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, either from YouTube or Facebook Live. We're trying this for the first time. Hopefully it's working out. Uh, but 
we are not there yet. And yet, God is right here with us every step of the way. He hasn't left us for a moment. And if you're just joining us, maybe this is the first time that you have had the opportunity to tune in with us here at Lighthouse. Uh, We are slowly walking through the book of Acts. We're learning from the early church as they grappled with uh, being in a place that they didn't anticipate being kind of feeling out of their element. We're in Acts chapter 19, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Um, And we're not studying the book of Acts because the early church did everything right. It's not like they had a, a monopoly on the right answers and we're just trying to somehow do what they did. The reason that we're studying Acts is because they found themselves in a very similar position to what we find ourselves in. They were out of their element, in over their head, in a place, in a country, in a space where people around them did not bend a knee to Jesus Christ. And yet they were armed with the gospel, the Holy Spirit in their hearts, and a willingness for God to use them. And with that willingness and the gospel and the Holy Spirit's enablement, they radically changed the world. And we're a living testament to that. And so as we find ourselves in the midst of a world that's gone crazy, where people are hurting left and right, we ourselves are hurting. We are just kind of saying, how can we learn from their example so that we can affect change in our culture, so that we can live as ambassadors of hope and reconciliation into our spheres of influence? And and so today we're going to continue to follow one person in particular, a guy named Paul who was one of the most prolific missionaries for the gospel that's ever lived. And this was a man who lived in opposition to the gospel initially, right? He was trying to stamp out the early church because he felt like they had missed the mark, that they had a misunderstanding of who God was until he met Jesus. And his life was radically transformed. And the moment Jesus got a hold of his heart, he began to put all of that energy he had been putting into stamping out the gospel into advancing the gospel. And so we're learning from him. And we're going to go ahead and throw a map up on the screen for you so you can see it. And this map simply shows Paul's second missionary journey because that's where we find ourselves in. This is simply to give you context. Paul began his mission over in Antioch. That's on the far right of the screen, the first star on the far right. That was his home church. From Antioch, his his intent was to go to Asia, which is that big pink blob in the middle. That was his intent, but as so often happens, man plans his path and the Lord directs his steps. God had something different planned for Paul. So even though he intended, he set out to go into Asia and to share the gospel in that area, God actually led him up to the top left area, Macedonia. He had a vision one night of somebody in Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia, please share the gospel here. And he was obedient. At the end of the day, he recognized that if he wasn't going with God, he was kind of working against God, at odds with God. And so he found himself in places like Philippi and Berea. And then later on, he went south down into Athens, which was similar to Hollywood, if you will. It was where all of the influencers, all of the philosophers that were shaping culture of that day lived. And then from Athens, he traveled south to Corinth, which was this melting pot uh, uh, of a kind of a uh, space where people, it was a port town, so you had people coming from all over the world. It was a crossroads of cultures. And he spent a year and a half there in Corinth. 
And then finally, God led him to go back to Asia. And that's where we're going to pick up the story is he finds himself in Ephesus. He has brought with him Timothy and Silas who had set out on this journey with him. He's picked up a couple of extra people on that journey with him. He's now got Aquila and his wife Priscilla who are also tent makers along with Paul. He had met them in Corinth as he was making tents to be able to support his way because his occupation was a support to his vocation. That's what we talked about last week. And now he finds himself in Ephesus. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. We read, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is just a short way of saying the space where God's sovereign will is carried out. It's that place where God's will is being done, even in the midst of the world. And so the kingdom of God is wherever his will is being done. And so that means that if we allow the will of God to be done in our own hearts, the kingdom of God starts here and then it spills over into our family and into our neighborhood or in our workplace, right? If we let God's will be done in our workplace, the kingdom of God has come crashing into there as well. And so Paul begins in the synagogue. And the reason he did this is because this was just the lowest hanging fruit. Remember, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. And so who better to begin to share the good news that the Messiah has come than with Jews who have been anticipating the coming of the Messiah? That's why he always began there. But as so often happens, he would receive pushback typically from the, the Jewish leadership because the description of the Messiah as a crucified carpenter raised from the dead, the fact that he was suggesting that the Messiah had come to throw off the yoke of slavery to sin and death as opposed to the yoke of Rome as the occupying force, that was always anathema as well. And so they typically rejected his suggestions and began to stir up trouble. And that's exactly what we see happening here. In verse 9 we read, Some of those Jews became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. Remember, Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. So the early church began to become known as the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We don't know exactly who Tyrannus was. He was probably a a Gentile philosopher who had a school where he would teach people. Uh, He would teach them rhetoric, which is, you know, how to speak, how to write. He would teach them philosophy. But for a few hours every day, Paul rented that place, and he basically held a life group. Right? This was the space for anybody who had a desire to hear about the good news, to grapple with these questions, to ask their questions from somebody, from Paul. They would come and they would interact. And we read that he did this for two years. And the effect of it is pretty profound. Read verse 10 here with me. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of of the Lord. Now keep in mind that Paul has never left uh, Ephesus. He has stayed there doing the same thing day in and day out. He would simply have conversations with the people God brought across his path. Maybe it was people from the marketplace that he invited in because he was making tents to help support himself. He met other people. Maybe it was friends that were bringing them and saying, hey, my friend wants to hear about Jesus. And they found themselves in this lecture hall, turned into a life group space, And for two years, he invested in people. 
And as people came in, they heard the good news, they embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and then they went back to their homes in other places around Asia. To the point where after two years, everybody's heard the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that everybody has embraced the gospel. Everybody hasn't embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but at least they have heard the gospel. And and this is something that theologians refer to as cultural acupuncture. And it's something that Paul did expertly. It's something that really helped the gospel advance. And this is what they mean by it. In regular acupuncture, it's a recognition that our body has nerve centers, right? We have nerves that run throughout our body that affect our muscles and affect our our, our breathing and everything else. And those nerves are really important to regulating how our body operates. And there are nerve centers that if you're having an issue in a certain area and you put a pin in it, it will affect change in that whole area. Cultural acupuncture works the same way. Paul couldn't possibly have gone to every single village and hamlet in Asia. It would have taken him multiple lifetimes. So instead what he does is he goes to one of the nerve centers. Philippi, you know, uh, Athens. Corinth, and now Ephesus. He goes to one of these cultural nerve centers and he invests himself there. And as he does so, the good news begins to spread into the whole region. I was beginning to think this week, well, what are some of the nerve centers of our culture? What are the places that we can begin to affect change on a much larger level by simply investing ourselves into it? And a very obvious one would be Hollywood, right? I mean, Hollywood is a small geographical region that affects great influence on our whole world. And there are some Christ followers who've begun to realize, you know what? I may not necessarily be, uh, you know, called to work in a church building. I may not necessarily even be called to be a missionary across seas, but I can tell stories. And I'm going to begin to use my ability to tell stories, write stories, Uh, you know, cinema, even short blips on YouTube and other things like that to begin to affect change. And we're seeing a huge impact of that. Another area that is obviously very impactful would be Washington, D.C., right? There are some Christ followers who have felt called to minister to those who are making massive decisions there or in Sacramento. And and our leadership needs prayer. And our leadership of our country and of our our state and of our local levels need, you know, some spiritual investment. But there are also some who are saying, you know, if I want to affect change here in my culture— In my city, I need to run for city council. And I'm grateful for those who have answered that call. That is a form of cultural acupuncture. Another form of it I see that is radically impactful, not just, you know, geographically, but through time would be teachers. Those of you who are investing in the next generation of walking alongside children who will one day be in charge of our state and in charge of our country— you cannot begin to overestimate the impact you teachers are having. And I know that this next year and the end of this last year looks very different from what you've anticipated, and we are grateful for the investment you're making. But that also goes for you parents who are raising your children and you grandparents who are you investing into your grandchildren. And those of you who have just wrapped your arms around other hurting kids and other hurting families and saying, you know what, I'm going to lean in and invest in you. That's cultural acupuncture, and it makes a massive difference. 
And we could add to this, those of you who are in the marketplace and, 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 you know, whether it's working or as a business owner and the influence that you can have in your spheres of influence. And then finally, I just look at the way that God has supernaturally placed us in our neighborhoods, in our spheres of influence. And he said, lean in here. These are the people I've placed around you. Be an ambassador of hope to them. And so this morning, we want to begin by just recognizing that God used Paul to effect radical change well beyond where he was geographically, but it began by simply being present and intentional with the people that he'd placed around him with his sphere of influence. We'll continue, though, because God was also active and busy in helping Paul continue to advance the gospel. We read in verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now this is an interesting passage because it can seem on the outset to be an affirmation of this idea that um, trinkets and, and other things that have touched somebody can be used to heal people. Right? In fact, when my wife just underwent surgery, somebody from our church brought her a prayer quilt. And the quilt itself was, was wonderful, but it had these little tassels on it that you were to tie as you were praying over her. And people, had, before we ever even got the quilt from my wife, people had already tied it. It was a beautiful, tangible item that has been used to remind us to pray. And she sleeps with it on our bed every night, and I'm so grateful for that. But I want to remember the fact that she's not healed by that quilt She's not even healed necessarily by my ability to pray for her. She's healed by God. But our prayers are us joining in with him and inviting him in. It's a tangible reminder to pray. This is something unique. This is something that was unique to Ephesus. And in fact, I would suggest that this was God speaking to the Ephesians in a language that they could understand. Theologians use the term contextualization. This was him putting the gospel in a way that they could understand because one of the things that's really important to understand about Ephesus is it was a center of mystical arts. It was a place that leaned heavily on magic. So much so that In ancient writings, whenever they referred to the Ephesian writings, more often than not, they were referring to magic scrolls with incantations on them. So this was the culture that Paul found himself in. And what God is doing is he is allowing the gospel to be advanced by speaking their language, by contextualizing it. I love the way that one theologian put it. A guy named Conrad Gempf wrote this. The incarnation, meaning God, has always been about God limiting himself in dramatic, nearly absurd ways in order to communicate to a fallen and absurd people. The incarnation, God limiting himself, speaking in a way that we might consider to be absurd because he's speaking the language of the audience to which he's addressing. And we see this all throughout Scripture. 
we see God speaking to a shepherd who has run away from home, run away from everything he knew because of a poor choice that he made, a guy named Moses, and he speaks to him through a bush that is on fire but isn't consumed. He speaks to these, these astrologers. We call them wise men, but they were astrologers that worshiped the stars, and he speaks to them. He declares the birth of his son, the Messiah, through a star. We see him speak to fishermen through this massive catch of fish. And we see him speak to the world by limiting himself and his godhood and taking on flesh and being born as a child. We see time and time again, God contextualizing to enter into our reality and reach to people that he's trying to reach in a way that they can understand. So why wouldn't he take some of Paul's sweat rags that he's, he's wiping the sweat off his face as he's making these tents and people take them and begin to touch the sick with them and the sick are healed because in this culture, people were constantly looking to trinkets and little statuettes of Artemis, their patron goddess. We'll talk more about her next week. And they're taking these magic scrolls and they're reading them over sick people, hoping that they'll be healed. And God kind of uses this, allows this to advance the gospel there in Ephesus. And it begins to work. So much so that word begins to spread. This wasn't the only way that God was moving, but in a little comical Inclusion here in verse 13, we read that some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, they didn't know Jesus. They hadn't accepted him as their Lord and their Savior, but they'd seen that Paul had driven out spirits. They'd seen that Paul had used the name Jesus in his prayers, and they go, man, there's power in that. Let's lean into that. And so they began to use Jesus' name as an incantation. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. There were these seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who were doing this. And one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And that's just comical to read about. But it was also a powerful example of the fact that, yes, there is power in the name of Jesus. We talked about that two weeks ago. And if you're interested in looking into kind of how prayer and how the name of God, name of Jesus can break chains, I encourage you to go back and listen to that on our YouTube page. But here's the point I'm driving at this morning. Yes, there is power in the name of Jesus, but that power, that authority, is a borrowed power. It is Jesus' authority, Jesus' power. And when we have relationship with him, we have the ability to tap into it because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And all spiritual created beings must obey the name of Jesus, must obey him. But these were men who didn't know Jesus, had no relationship with Jesus. They were simply using his name as another of their magic incantations. And the spirits were able to resist and absolutely kick their backsides and embarrass them publicly. But even that advanced the kingdom of God there in Ephesus. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus... 
they were all seized with fear. Now, this word fear is a really important one in Scripture because it's really easy to misunderstand it. When we use the word fear today, we are typically talking about something that brings terror, something that we're afraid of, right? Like spiders or um, tax collectors or other people that, you know, any salesman that comes to your door, it's like we automatically fear. And right now, sadly, people who are walking down the street, right? Have you, have you done that where you're walking down the street and you see somebody else coming and you're like, walk to the other side of, of the, the street? And it breaks my heart because there's going to be a lot of unlearning we're going to need to do at the back end of this. But there's a lot of fear as well. And it's really interesting that in uh, Psalms and Proverbs, something that comes up again and again is this declaration that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But we're not talking about a terror of God as if he's some you know, divine judge with a lightning bolt just ready to strike us down the moment we do something wrong. The fear of God actually speaks more to a reverential respect for his power because he is God and we are not. And it's such that as we begin to understand that he's God and we're not, we will begin to orient our lives around him as opposed to demanding he orient his life around us. It's kind of like how if I'm riding a bicycle and I come up to some train tracks and I see the train coming, I'm not going to demand that the train wait for me to cross. I am going to stop and let it go because it's more powerful than me and it will win every time. God is God and we are not. And so we need to orient our lives around him rather than demanding that he orient his will and all of creation around us to suit our needs. Make this go faster, God. Just get us there. We want to be done with it. Make COVID disappear. Be nice if he would. But he doesn't do it that way. Are we there yet? No. Not even remotely. But I'm still with you. And so the fear of God is a reverential respect, a reverential recognition that he's God and we are not. So we will fix our eyes on him even in the midst of the storm. So when all of this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they all were seized with a reverential respect for God. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. But listen to this next part, because this is really important to where we find ourselves right now. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Many people who had already said yes to Jesus began to recognize that in many ways they had added Jesus as another layer of protection from the world without ever letting go of the other things that they'd been holding on to. Remember, this was a people that were raised to believe in mysticism, to rely on trinkets and magical spells. And they grabbed hold of Jesus as another powerful way to have control over their lives, but they never let go of the other things in their life. And now they're being convicted because what they've done, this is, this is syncretism, which is just a big word for saying we try to pool all of the different religious stuff together. We make this weird amalgamation that has nothing to do with the gospel. It's Jesus plus everything else. Jesus plus Crystals and new age stuff. Jesus plus my Buddha statue. Jesus plus uh, the palm reader down the street. Jesus plus doTERRA oils. Sorry, Robin, I'm just kidding. 
Um, Jesus plus anything completely undermines the power of the gospel that says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Right? He has done it all. We need nothing else. And the moment we start holding on to other things, it impedes us from grabbing a hold of Jesus. And so these men and women who saw the power of the name of Jesus began to recognize, dang, I kind of understood that there was something about the name of Jesus. Paul was convincing. And I said yes to Jesus, but I didn't realize that I'd only grabbed hold of him with one hand. And in my other hand, I've been holding on to all of this other stuff. And now I need to let go of it. I need to let it go so that I can hold on to him with both hands because he is my everything. And that's what we see happening here. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. Now this is a beautiful picture of worship. This is a picture of a people who are so convicted that they've been holding on to other things that are impeding them from holding on to Jesus fully, that they're saying, I want to get rid of it. I want to get it out of my house. I want to get it out of my life. I'm going to lay it down in the most public and, and, uh, you know, like in in the same way that baptism is a public declaration of an internal decision. This is an internal decision that they have made that they are presenting publicly saying, I'm done with these things. These things that I've been brought up to rely upon They become an impediment to me saying yes to Jesus fully. And so I'm letting go. Now let's talk a little bit about what this is, but also what this isn't. This is an act of worship. This is a declaration both personally, but also made publicly that they are following Jesus. He can have it all. They're letting go of everything else. But this is not a public kind of forcing their perspective onto the rest of Ephesus. This is not like what the Nazis did when they decided that they were going to begin to clean out anything that spoke against what they were for and then they ended up going through people's homes and forcibly taking books out and burning them and going into libraries and removing anything that said anything negative against their philosophy. That is not this. It's not even what we see currently happening a couple of weeks ago with statues being toppled by angry people because they feel like this is not an appropriate response. This, we are going to repent publicly for the sins of our nation. This is a very different thing than that. Because what we see happening there is a group of people feeling convicted of something and then projecting it onto everybody else and saying, you must submit to what we feel convicted of. And may I humbly suggest to you that any time a small group of people try to force their moral perspective onto the world, that is oppression. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Yes, that has happened numerous times, pretty much constantly since the formation of our nation. And it is not something we want to perpetuate. But it's not acceptable to say, because you did it, we will now do it. Two wrongs have never made a right. And we see this happening. And as Christ followers, may I simply and humbly suggest to you, 
that although this will probably continue in our nation and in our world until Jesus comes home, as Christ followers, we cannot give in to that temptation. We cannot take our convictions and force them onto other people. Even God doesn't do that. God desires that every single man, woman, and child who bears his image, which is everybody who has breath in their lungs, would come to know him and have relationship, but he doesn't force himself upon them. Could he? Absolutely he could. But he chooses not to. Because relationship, genuine love, require, it's a two-way street. It requires both parties to choose to opt in. God can't just unilaterally decide, you're in, I'm forcing you in. And in the same way, we can't force anybody to change. And some of the worst, darkest chapters of the church have been when we have tried to legislate and force our views onto others. The Crusades, the Inquisition. You just go on through some of the history of the church. It's ugly and it's bloody because we have sought to be the moral hammer that changes our society. That is not what is happening here in Ephesus. What is happening here is happening here in the hearts of every man and woman who begins to realize Jesus plus anything else is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And I want to take hold of Jesus with both hands. And that means I got to let go of this other stuff. And so they go into the only space that they have true authority over their homes, and their hearts, and they begin to clean house. They begin to take things out of their homes that represent holding on to something else. My magic scrolls, they got to go because Jesus alone is God. Jesus alone has the power. And I'm going to hold on to him with both hands. I'm not going to continue to just add Jesus in to all of this other stuff. Jesus plus my crystals, gone. Jesus plus my my statuette to Artemis, gone. Jesus is everything. And they begin to take these things and they bring them publicly and they start a bonfire and people begin to keep their things onto it. And this is an act of worship. Just as powerful as if they had given financially to the early church. Just as powerful as, they were, as if they were raising their voices in worship. Their act of sacrificing, of submitting these things that they owned was an act of worship. Now, some of us might say, well, wait a minute. Because we read the value of this. This is, this is not just kind of like a small, like knee-jerk response that, has, you know, that really isn't all that costly to them. We read that when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was equivalent to a single day's wage for a regular worker, which means that the equivalent of the value of what they burned of their own property was 50,000 days wages. And some of us might say, now, this is ridiculous. They're, They're living in a city where they could have sold these things easily, even if it was for a discount, they could still have used that money for so much good. But remember what this is. This is a people feeling convicted of the things that they've held on to, of their idols, of their 
they're false pseudo-gods, and they're saying, I want them gone. I don't want them in my life anymore. The last thing they want to do is give them to somebody else so that they can stay in bondage. And so their act of burning them is an act of worship. But it's their things. It's not other people's. They're not forcing anything on anybody else. And we read in verse 20 the effects that their act of sacrifice had. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. As men and women living in Ephesus watched these Christ followers follow in the most powerful example they could by taking things that were of great value and turning their back on them. Of living out their faith, of loving their fellow person, of cleansing their lives, even from the very things that everybody else said was the most important stuff. Now, there is pushback to this. They encounter tremendous pushback. We're going to look at that next week. When the empire strikes back, oftentimes it strikes back hard. But for this week and for us today, I've been thinking a lot about what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? And I can't help but feel like our mindset is often external, right? Our typical human response when we see that the world is broken and the world is broken and it takes something like what we're experiencing right now where all of the foundations around us are being shaken, where the foundation of the, you know, our our constitution and all of our freedoms as a free country are being shaken in some ways And, and, and our finances and all of the money that we've accumulated and all of our savings and all that kind of stuff is being shaken right now and all of the ways that we just feel comfortable in life our own health and our safety and all of those things are being shaken. And when everything is shaken, our tendency is to try to find something that cannot be shaken. Because we've been hanging our security and our comfort on the hooks of some very transitory things, some very transient things, things that are easily shaken. And we're all experiencing this. Even those who don't consider Jesus to be Lord and Savior are experiencing a shaking of their life and their comfort zones. Gone. And in the midst of that, our desire would be that everybody would hear the good news. That's my desire. My prayer is that every single person that hears this, if you're listening on Facebook or YouTube, my desire is that you would know that God loves you and he alone cannot be shaken. We know, this isn't taking him by surprise. It's taking all of us by surprise. We're all wondering how much longer are we there yet? Can you just make this all go away? This isn't taking God by surprise. He knows the end from the beginning and thankfully we know how this is gonna end. We know that Jesus is going to win. And even this, even COVID doesn't get the last word. He does. That's the promise of the cross. That because of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, the brokenness of this world and all of the baggage that comes with it, the depression, the anxiety, the addiction, even the suicidal thoughts, those things don't get the last word. And if COVID were to take your health or even take your life, The hope we have in Christ is that that doesn't get the last word. He does. Because there's power in the name of Jesus. But as much as it is my desire and our desire that our 
family members and our neighbors and our city government and, and, and our country and our, you know, everybody in Washington would get this and know this and live this out. If we truly want to make a change, what I am convicted of this morning is it doesn't start by trying to legislate change. It does not start by just waiting till November and that day that we get to vote and somehow that's when change is going to begin. No, 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 no. I would suggest to you, and I'm going to say this a lot in the coming months, that voting is the single most anemic form of change that we have at our disposal. It's, is it important? You better believe it. Incredibly important. We need to do it. But it's still the weakest, most anemic form of legislating change that we have at our disposal. Because we only get to do that once every two years. But we get to vote for the kind of world we want to live in and the kind of values that we want to see lived out every single moment of every single day But it doesn't start out there. It starts here. And what I am convicted of, as I look at these Ephesian Christians, is that when they recognized that they had hitched their wagon to some pretty empty powers, that they had been holding on to stuff that at the end of the day could not save them, and they recognized that in their other hand they had Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith, These things became like garbage to them, and they treated them as such. But what they did not do is they did not try to force their values down the throat of the entire world. Instead, they chose to live out their values, and that was the most powerful statement that they could make. You want to change this world? Start here. You want to see real change? Stop focusing on the specs in the eyes of everybody around you. Yes, everybody's got specs. Everybody's got some pretty big specs, but we got logs in our own eye. You start here. You start by addressing the log in your eye. You start by praying the prayer of David. I'm going to read this. This is from Psalm 139. This is my prayer for us, but this is my prayer for me. It's one I prayed this morning. It's one I'm going to keep praying. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there's anything that I've been holding on to in this world to give me comfort. Anything I've been reaching out to for my solace, for my thinking that I somehow can control my life and my children's lives and my wife's life. If I could just hold on to that. Show me if there's anything I've been holding on to and lead me in the way everlasting. That's my prayer for us. That we would be the kind of people who are willing to allow God to shine the light of his truth into our hearts and expose our own brokenness. Not so that we can feel bad about ourselves or try to go crawling back into the darkness but so that he can heal us and cleanse us and, and help us to begin to radiate his love into this world. Because if God's only desire was that people would come to know him, that's it. He would just zap us into heaven the moment that we give our hearts to him, but he doesn't. 
Because when he redeems us and restores us and calls us his own, he then turns us back around and points us back to the world and says, now go reflect my heart. This is what I created you to do in the beginning. You're my ambassadors, my image bearers. Go and reflect my heart. This light is not your own. It's a reflected light from me. You are the moon. I am the sun. But you stand in the darkness during midnight, radiating the light, my light, into this world. So now go and reflect my heart. Now we can only do this with his enablement. We can only do this with the Holy Spirit filling us up and giving us hope. And it's it's sometimes hard to do because we feel pretty empty right now. I know a lot of us are feeling pretty exhausted, pretty discouraged, and that's okay. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to do it perfectly to be used by God. Just look at the early church, right? They did not do it perfectly, yet God used them anyway. Because it is God who is looking for those who are willing to be used by him to advance his kingdom purposes and bring about his will in this world. And I, for one, want him to use me. And so I need to begin by looking inside and inviting the Holy Spirit to cleanse me. And so I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me. And I'm going to pray for myself. And I invite you to pray with me. If this, if what I'm about to say resonates with your heart, then just echo it. And if what I'm about to say doesn't resonate with your heart, then you go ahead and pray whatever it is is on your heart. But Jesus, thank you for loving somebody as unlovable as me. Thank you for giving your life when I continue to stand in open rebellion to you. Thank you, Father, for pursuing me even when I want to run the other way. Thank you for your grace that you hold on to me even when I'm trying to hold on to the world with white knuckles, afraid to let go of the things that have become my crutches, that have become my security blankets. Thank you, God, for entering into my reality and speaking to me through Jesus, speaking to me through your word, speaking to me through my circumstances, even speaking to me through this stinking shutdown that I'm so tired of. I know that I keep crying, are we there yet? How much longer, and I take my eyes off of you and I fix them on this world. Thank you for your grace even in that. Now, God, I invite you to search me and to know me. I invite you to expose anything that I've been holding on to that is of this world, whether for security or for solace. I'm sorry for giving your glory to other things. And I'm sorry for the ways I've misrepresented your heart in the way I've interacted with people. Thank you for loving me. And thank you that you are still willing to use me. So help yourself to my life. Search me and know me. Show me if there's anything that I need to let go of. And then I pray, Father, I pray that you would give me the strength to let go of it. Because at the end of the day, I want your will to be done. And I want my neighbors and I want this world to know that you are God so that they too can take hold of you with both hands. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus, we pray in your holy name. Amen.
Let's continue to worship. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name.
go ahead and stand together wherever you are. It doesn't matter. Let's go ahead and stand and sing this song together. You know, I, I know that there's been a lot of talk about worship. And right now, oh, it feels so good to get to worship, even with just a couple of people in here knowing that you're worshiping from home. But our worship doesn't stop simply because this music stops. Now we get to worship through the way that we live. 
And I was just thinking as, as we were worshiping, what are some ways we can respond tangibly this week? One way would be simply to say, God, I invite you to take a look at my life and I want to look at it with you. Holy Spirit, show me what I need to see. Search me and know me. Go to Psalm 139. The last two verses of it are that prayer. Search me and know me, O God. Know my innermost thoughts. Show me if there's anything that is out of alignment with you. Any way that I'm holding on to the world and lead me in the way everlasting. That's one response. Another response would be simply to pour out your heart to God. And and, and we want to join you in that. If you have any prayer requests, we want to join you in praying. We pray throughout the week for them. Just email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and we will join you in lifting those things up. If you want to respond financially as a way of saying, God, I put all of my trust in you, not in my bank account. Or God, you've been good to me and I just simply want to respond as a way of saying thanks. You can go to lighthousecommunity.com and there's a way to give directly through there. But finally, let us worship him through the way we love, through the way we reflect his heart into this world. That's why we live. That is what he made us to do. So now let's join him in filling this dark, dark, hurting world with light. Jesus, help yourself to our lives. Would you give us the eyes to recognize those who are hurting around us? Would you just prompt us to reach out to people we haven't seen in a while? Would you use us as extensions of your arms reaching to the hurting? And would you give us the words? Would you help our lives to reflect your heart even when we don't use words, just through the way we live? We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.